Hi, I'm Stacy Perrin, Director of Youth and Family Services at the Mental Health Association of Central Florida. Please remember that mental health is health. You're listening to Black Men Sundays. It's a Black Men Sunday. Time to put all childish things away. I refuse to be the man I was yesterday. Gotta put my best foot forward and elevate. What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sundays. I'm your host, Corey Sylvester Murray. We're talking about generational wealth. We're talking about mental health. And we're talking about finance and business. And before we introduce today's guest, my brother Eric from Huntsville, a.k.a. Hunts Vegas, Alabama. First off, how's the weather? And who do you have for our Black Men Sunday Spotlight? Hey, thanks, Black Tour. Uh, the weather here is great, man. Um, well, it's not great. We've been under like a little freeze, worn with a lot of ice and stuff, but now everything seems to have melted and everything. So, but today's spotlight, I'm a spotlight is this guy. Uh, his name is Ronnie Long. This is the thing about Ronnie Long would make him stand out as a spotlight and just kind of recognize him. Okay, now after serving 44 years for a rape and burglary that he did not commit, this 68-year-old Ronnie Long reached a settlement with the state of North Carolina for $25 million, the second largest wrongful conviction settlement in U.S. history. Now, Long was initially giving only an insulting $750,000 in compensation, but after filing a civil lawsuit, he was awarded an additional $25 million along with a formal apology. Now, in 1976, Long was only 21 years old when an all-white jury that was handpicked by local law enforcement convicted him of raping a prominent 54-year-old white woman in Concord, North Carolina, and he was given two life sentences. Now, an appeals court finally overturned his conviction in 2020, citing jury tampering by the police chief and by false testimonies from both detectives that did the case. Now, the prosecution also proven his innocence, including a rape kit that collected 43 different fingerprints and the suspect's hair that did not match Long's. And also there was a semen sample that also disappeared from the evidence. Now after his release, Long was eager to spend time with his family, including his wife, Ashley, who he married from prison in 2014. But sadly, both of Long's parents died before seeing him free and exonerated from this American nightmare. His mother passed away just 30 days before his release. And, you know, that was the biggest thing that he regret, that his mother went to the grave, not seeing her son free or being relieved from this dreadful conviction. That's my spotlight for today, Mr. Ronnie Long. Now, back to you, Corey. Wow, man, that's great information, man. And, you know, one thing, you know, we talk about generational wealth on Black Men Sundays. We talk about finance and business, but I feel like we don't really talk about mental health that often we've right. talked about it once we had a licensed clinical social worker from columbia university that spoke about it um and i felt like you know when we're talking about this generational wealth finance and business we don't talk about like we talk about generational wealth right but we don't talk about generational trauma and we mm -hmm. don't talk about the generational poverty so what did i do i said okay 
I answered my emails. That's what I tell people. And Eric from Huntsville, I appreciate that spotlight. My brother, let me go and get to this guest because, you know, when we talk about answering emails, sometimes you look at emails, you're like, okay. But you don't realize some people that when you answer those emails, you meet others. So who am I talking about? We're talking about Stacey Perrin, licensed clinical social worker, children and families, navigating various mental health diagnoses. She's also the director of the Mental Health Association of Central Florida, MHACF, Youth and Family Services Program. We're going to talk about all that, but let's run her credentials real quick. Even though I'm struggling to say, you know, the school, she got her uh, Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Florida. She also has a bachelor's and a master's in social work from University of Central Florida. That's UCF in Orlando because, you know, we're worldwide. So without further ado, Stacey Perrin, welcome to Black Men Sundays. How are you doing? Hi, Corey. Thanks a lot. I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here to talk to you today. Definitely. And I'm excited to talk to you as well. We talk about generational wealth. We talk about generational poverty, but we don't talk enough about generational trauma. So how can generational trauma affect the creation of generational wealth? Oh, it, it just would affect it so profoundly in so many ways. But when you look at generational trauma and the mental health impact that that has on individuals, you know, mental health is kind of the, the foundation and the building block for the trajectory of your life. So when you look at, at you know, people that families that have experienced generational trauma, the way that can impact their mental health, their social and social and emotional wellness. Um, it's, it's just profound. So I'm really glad that we can talk about that today. Yes, definitely. You know, I'm just going to give you a couple alley-oops, kind of warm you up first. Sure. So, you know, uh, you started a pilot program, January 8th, Youth and Families. Let's talk about that program, the impetus of it and how we can affect our community. Yeah, sure. So I'm very excited. I was actually hired to create this program. And what I did was I, I built a program based on my years of experience working with children and families, in large part, um, families that had experienced um, generational trauma, a lot of children that had experienced all kinds of traumatic situations in their life. So I created a model um, to empower children, uh, to make, to educate them about their individual mental health, the symptoms they had, how it impacts their behaviors, and then to start empowering them by building into their lives strategies that they could use to cope. And that could then help them make different choices and lead them to, you know, greater success in their lives. No, that's great information. Yeah. And let's dive in a little deeper to that. Like what age ranges are we talking about? We're talking um, about six to 17 are the ages because, and it was interesting because initially we were going to call this the adolescent and family program. But as soon as we started to get the word out into the community, we were hearing about children as young as six years old that really needed the services. And of course, how could we say no? I, I want to get to kids as young as possible. And so we changed the name to Youth and Family Services, and we've already been working with some younger children. You know, when we talk about generational wealth, mental health is health. You know, Absolutely. on Black Men's Centers, we have so many accountants, financial advisors. We're talking money, stocks and bonds and all. But health is wealth, but mental health is wealth as well. Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. And we need to keep saying that over and over again, that mental health is health. It's as important 
you know, so making sure that your mental health is good and getting the help and the support and the diagnoses that you need for mental health is just as important as getting that annual checkup, getting your blood work, getting, you know, having your doctor listen to your breathing and listen to your heart. We need to destigmatize seeking help for mental health and, and make it as seamless as getting that annual physical is nobody has a stigma about going to a doctor, right? If you're, and if your child has a cough or has some, you know, allergies or, you know, or maybe is struggling with their vision, there's no stigma attached to seeing that medical professional that can intervene there and help them. We want that to be the same thing with children that are struggling with any kind of social and emotional wellness or any kind of um, behavioral symptoms. Wow, great information. And I kind of want to take it a step further. When we talk about mental health, mm -hmm. I feel like there's a stigma attached to it is I don't, I don't want us to be diagnosed. You know, we've been general generationally been doing this. You just, if you feel a certain way, you do X, Y, Z. So what can we do to destigmatize the fear of diagnosis and mental health? Well, it's, you know, knowledge is power. And I think we need to look at it that way when you know what's going on with you and you there's, there's always hope. And I think that's part of it too, is as we decrease stigma and as we increase information out there, I think, you know, years and years ago, if a family member had someone that struggled with mental health, that was a person that was kind of cast out. That was an outsider. That was the person that nobody talked about, you know, at family gatherings, they were separated from the community. We want to make sure that we are, that we create that knowledge that there is so much hope and there is so much help for mental health. And there's no reason for individuals that are struggling with a mental health diagnosis to be separated from their community. You know, speaking about that, because this is Black Men's Sunday. So, you know, with us as well, people want to know, okay, the financial side of it, what if I'm diagnosed, but I'm uninsured, I don't have the funds to pay for the, the medications? Like, what are you guys doing over at the uh, MHACF to, you know, help me out with the uninsured? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So these are free services, first of all, free services for people that don't have insurance. And we also have funds for medication when that is needed, um, that we, we do have a, a collaboration with um, the Orange County Medical Clinic um, to make sure that people get the medications that they might need. You know, Definitely. we don't want finances or insurance to be a, a block to getting the kind of help that people need. Definitely. And, you know, for a lot of our listeners, I mean, we cover the full spectrum. We have CEOs that listen. We have homeowners that are buying their first home, buying their second, third home. But then we also have people up and coming that are, you know, trying to figure it all out. So if I'm coming from an underserved community and I'm a little concerned about, you know, getting a mental health checkup or just getting anything mental health involved, like what can you say to kind of ease my fear some? First of all, it's, I think the, the best way to ease fear is to talk about the fact that this is something that is so common. There are so many people that struggle with, with different mental health diagnoses. It's, it, you would not be the only one. And that the, the quicker that you can get that help, the quicker you can begin healing and moving forward in your life and having the things that you want to have. So not letting that, you know, those concerns about your mental health be a barrier to getting the help that you need. And I think too, just knowing as we create more information out there, with just knowing that there's so much hope, I think that's the, the most important thing. You know, it's not a matter of you get a diagnosis and that's your lot in life and you just move on and you have to live with it through therapy, 
through different types of strategies and sometimes even through medication, people live amazing lives and they have great, they go on to great success. Definitely. And let's, let's backtrack a little bit because you're the director. Mm -hmm. Where did that idea for you come from? You know, first off, you started the program, a new, the youth and families program, January 8th, but going back even further, you know, what inside of you said, I'm going to get a bachelor's and a master's in social work. <laughs> like, where did that come from? Well, first I have this fascination with the science of behavior. And so I went and got that first degree in psychology and, you know, it was, it was very interesting to me and I learned so much, but I wanted that human side too. And which is what led me to social work. I I've always had a passion for working with underserved communities. And I also wanted to look at the whole person, that whole individual, their family, their community. And, and that's what, you know, the whole discipline of social work really um, teaches you. Okay. Gotcha. Great information. To another okay. level, I guess I took the science and then I could apply it really, really well with what, what I learned from social work. No, that's great information. It's just, you know, when I look at people's resumes, I always try to find some type of correlation and I'm like, hmm, a bachelor's and a master's in social work, bachelor's in psychology. So I just kind of wanted to ask that question, but let's um talk a little bit about medical management. Cause I feel like when we talk about mental health, one of the stigmas that I hear a lot of times is no, I don't want to take the medicine. It makes me feel bad, but I feel better when I don't have it. But then family members say otherwise. So let's talk about like the importance of medical management. So, you know, not everyone needs medication um, to assist them with their mental health, but when it's needed, it can really make a huge difference. And the best analogy I can give that I, I give to clients um, is when you picture a person who truly needs medication, it would be like if you're just going to counseling without the medication and there's a need for medication, it's like pushing a car uphill because you're fighting gravity when you're pushing a car uphill. Well, you're fighting brain chemistry that could be better balanced when you're talking about therapy without medication when it's needed. Um, and then adding the medication in would be more like pushing a car on a flat surface. So you still, the therapy is always necessary. And that's, that's the effort that comes from you in collaboration with a good therapist. But once that, that brain chemistry is addressed and the, that part is like, you're not fighting that anymore, then it's a smoother process. But again, not everyone needs medication, but when it is needed, um, it is, it can make a profound difference. And I think the other thing that's really important for people to understand is that sometimes the first medication that's tried isn't the right one. And there's, there's a process that you work with a, a good prescriber. And these are people that are trained in brain chemistry and, and they will, you know, sometimes it's a matter of adjusting that medication. Other times it's a matter of you not responding well to that one, but there are so many others out there. I think that's a very important thing for people to understand. I've heard, you know, so many times where someone tries a medication, they either didn't get it to a therapeutic level or it just wasn't the right medication that fit them and, and their DNA. And they thought this means it won't help me at all. It just means that wasn't the right medication. Mm, yeah. I had to ask that question because I get emails about that often. And let's yeah. go back to um, family culture, sure. behaviors, normalization of family culture, because you know, when when we talk about generational wealth, we kind of, the mental health only pops up randomly, but it's not like 
you know, I take the initiative to have a Stacy parent on the show. That's why you're here because it's like, you know, we, we have these money professionals, but then they start talking about, Oh, I'm getting counseling. I have mental health issues. And it's like, Whoa. And this has come up a few mm -hmm. times. So when we're talking about mental health, how can mental health honestly help navigate wealth? When your mental health is managed well and when you're kind of functioning optimally, doesn't doesn't that kind of lead to functioning optimally in other areas of your life? So when you look at, um, you know, for instance, if you are a person that has high anxiety, anxiety can be paralyzing to people. And so if you're already feeling paralyzed, how do you take that first step in your career or in your, you know, or in your college plan? It's, it's going to be a, a foundational, you know, building block to everything that comes after that. Definitely. And that kind of transitions to my next question, because when we talk about the normalization, you know, sometimes you, you know, there's a severe trauma history, you know, you, sometimes you see the kids lash out, PTSD, depression, schizophrenia, autism spectrum, which we had a sister on here that runs a successful business and she's autistic. So my question for you is like, when you have that family history, mm -hmm. how can that not hinder you? But as long as you're diagnosed, how can that help you sustain not only, you know, your mental health, but how can that also help you if you're an entrepreneur? So, okay. Getting back to when you were talking about family history and normalization of certain, I, I look at patterns and behavioral patterns, and I'll, I'll give you a really interesting example. Um, when I worked in Rhode Island, I had a few different families that um, lost family members through, you know, violence in the community or through um, an overdose situation. And it became kind of embedded in the family that leading up to the anniversary of a death kind of caused a shutdown. Children wouldn't go to school. Um, you know, parents would struggle. They'd struggle in their jobs because they didn't have that access to really good therapy to work through the grief and loss issues. So then it became, you know, I, I remember one time meeting with a mom and she just said to me, well, you just have to understand like June is the anniversary of his cousin's death. So he just stops going to school in May and then he can't really, you know, get it back together until months down the line. And so then what happens? The school system puts in truancy. Well, how is that helping with grief and loss, right? It, so now we're, we're meeting trauma and pain and grief with punitive measures instead of therapeutic measures. Mm. So you can change behavior patterns when you meet someone where they are and you get them the support that they need. And then that informs those different choices that they can make that lead to success. And what, you know, we say nothing succeeds like success, right? They taste that success. They start seeing, oh, I don't have to live like this. This isn't just what my family does every year. Yeah, great trajectory of an entire family. Yeah, great information because, you know, when I think of mental health, especially people that have been diagnosed, a lot of times I see that mm -hmm. they separate themselves from the community. So what can we do to aid not just, you know, education and mental health, but what can we do to help our brothers and sisters that may have mental health issues, but they're kind of, you know, they feel a little slighted, separated from society, from the community. Like what can we do to, you know, help them? In the bigger picture, it's again, create, educating the, everyone about the fact that mental health is health and that there shouldn't be a stigma and that this isn't something to be punished. I think looking at 
the whole the basic of restorative justice practices and how we it's key to have those relationships and the more someone feels included the more they they take care of their community as well and they contribute to the community so the last thing we should be doing is making someone feel like they 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 aren't they aren't included that they're being cast aside that that there's something about them that makes them unworthy of being connected to community so i think that's you know we have to educate everyone about this you know it's it's kind of evolutionary that people are suspicious of something that's different and I think the more we can normalize conversations about mental health and let people understand how many people in society struggle, the less different it seems. And it does seem, you know, you wouldn't shun someone for having asthma, right? You wouldn't shun someone for having a peanut allergy or um, diabetes. So this is another this is another issue that is that is just as prevalent and and important to include people. Yeah, definitely, because you know what. I, I immediately think of like underserved communities. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, where, you know, you may see a couple neighbors, you know, okay. You, you kind of just knew certain days don't play with him that day. But that leads to my questions. Like when, like when we talk about mental health, but untreated mental health, mm. you know, and then you see kids, you know, lashing out, having impulses, not realizing you know, they need some help. So what can we do in our underserved communities to really hit it home? Well, I think in addition to just educating communities and letting people know where the help is available, I think it's programs like the one that, you know, like the programs that we have at the Mental Health Association of Central Florida that are increasing that access. Because as people access supports, they make these important changes. Like talk about some of the programs that you just have going on right now. Well, so, you know, the Outlook Clinic is is where my program is based out of, and Outlook Clinic has um, for many years had an, a free counseling and medication and case management program for adults without insurance. The program that I'm starting now is, is for youth and families, but also will provide, you know, free counseling, free um, care coordination, and free medication management for youth with, um, that don't have insurance. That's, you know, that's one part, part of, our, of what we offer. We also have a connections department, and that's really important for people to know about, because if you go on the MHACF.org um, website and you go to the connections tab, that's how you can make, um, you can access the adult and the youth and families programs for counseling. So, and connections also has this huge database that can connect people, even people that have insurance with providers in the community all over central Florida. We have a guardian advocate program too for um, for people that need advocacy um, that don't maybe have a family member or a close relative that can you know support them through that type of a journey. We, we so we have that program, and then we have a reflections program that provides um, recovery coaching for people with lived experience that have lived through that have lived with different uh, mental health diagnoses. Definitely. And let's talk about the care coordination, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people are going to be like, what's that? Let's talk about that a little bit. So, well, care coordination is uh, so, you know, I would do the clinical part. So, uh, you know, I would do the counseling, the care coordinator that I work with, who's amazing, um, helps, first of all, connect families with other resources that they might need in the community. 
um, and because my program also has a, a research component to it, because we're tracking the efficacy of this particular model, she checks in with families every week so that we're collecting data to see how kids are doing. We're talking about data. So yes. like, let's talk about like, how's the data being differentiated per family? Well, there's certain things that I'm tracking. So, um, you know, basically what I want to see is what kind of progress are these kids making, right? So um, it's talking, it's looking at, so each program is very individualized for each child, but we would be looking at what are their main issues. So let's say one child has some real anger issues and maybe the anger is being seen at home as well as at a community center and at school. So we would check in with the people in that child's life, the, the family, the school and the community center staff to see if there's a decrease in these behaviors because we are also working with this child and teaching them different coping strategies and ways to manage that anger. Definitely. And you know, as the kid gets in middle school and high school, mm -hmm. how can your program, the youth and families program help the kid once they're in that middle high school age to better think for themselves? Well, you know, I mean, it, again, the younger that you can get a child, well, here's, here's the thing about neuroplasticity. So that's the ability for a brain to kind of re, for, for lack of not to get too technical, kind of rewire and, and help those, those pathways to help a, a person make some different choices in the way they respond to things. Um, think differently too. So, the younger you can have a child access this type of support, the younger they start being able to make those changes and they can and they can start, you know, seeing a difference in the way they respond to things and different outcomes will happen in their life and they'll, you know, have a greater success and less problems. But that's not to say that throughout the ages, we used to think that only children had this neuroplasticity, but we know now through research that even adults do. So whether you're a young child, a uh, you know, an adolescent or middle school child or high school child, therapy is still going to make a difference. So you're never too old to access that. What we hope with this program, though, too, is that there's, you know, it's not that a child comes into therapy and is in therapy forever. That's not really the vision. We What we want to do is help a child make that progress, make those changes in their lives, and then maybe step down to a, a different level of support. Maybe a child needs some, at that point, increased community involvement. It could be, you know, different groups in the community or support groups, or sometimes even a sports team can be incredibly therapeutic, especially socially. So again, we want to be very child specific. And as we see that child make the progress where they can transition out of that weekly one-to-one -one therapy, it, it might be, you know, less frequent therapy, but it could also be transitioning to community supports. Mm, definitely. Because I hear, you know, adults that, you know, they get diagnosed in their adult years and they're like, man, I wish I knew when I was a kid because this is why I acted this way. This is why I felt this way. So mm -hmm. how important, in addition to your program, how important is to get, you know, younger um, brothers and sisters, you know, checked out for mental health? It's it's so important. I can't emphasize it enough, especially if a young child is is struggling the sooner they can get some type of um, support, that the sooner they will find a different, you know, they'll they'll find that that intervention that can change the way they're responding. And and again, you know, you look at a child who starts to struggle, and maybe it's impacting them in school, and then maybe they're kind of getting labeled as a behavior problem, and then that's causing limitations. Or maybe a child who's 
maybe a child who's struggling and having behavioral issues on a sports team and they're asked to leave us, you know, leave that sports team. Such an important um, part of a child's life would be to have that outlet. And now all of a sudden they, they can't have that outlet anymore because they're struggling behaviorally. So the sooner you can get these interventions going and the child can make different changes and, and kind of get back to some of those important elements of their childhood, the better. Are you enjoying yourself on Black Men Sundays? I am. This is great. I could, you know, see, I could talk about this stuff all day, though. I love this. Yeah, me too. I can talk about it all day as well. Kalali, I see my brother Kalali's on here. Do you have any questions? Or are you good, man? I'm good Yo. for right now, but the information so far so is is, is wonderful. It's, it's good to see um, someone getting involved, you know, early in in, uh, in childhood, you know, uh, uh and helping us, you know, address issues, you know, any issues with, you know, childhood mental health. I feel, I feel like, especially in Black communities, that's like an under, you know, underrepresented issue. People don't really um, um, address that issue. So, um, kudos to you for doing that. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I, I guess that's one thing. I guess I do have a question. What are the um, negative impacts that you've seen from uh, from these type of issues not being addressed um, or going unaddressed as people go from? Uh, from childhood into adulthood? Oh, it's just, you know, such negative impacts. I mean, and again, it's about just the way a child's self-image. So a child who's struggling because there are there are things going on beyond their control. You know, maybe this is a child who has, uh, we talk about, we didn't really talk about the um, adverse childhood experience score, but there there's an actual inventory that that like monitors a child, the types of adverse experiences that a child has encountered in their life. And so those things have a profound impact on, on behaviors and also physical health. And if they go unaddressed, that's going to lead to less and less success. It's going to lead to, you know, not having access to some of the opportunities and resources that another child would have. So the sooner that intervention can happen, the greater the success that child can achieve and the more, the, the better the trajectory of their life can be. You know, that's, that's actually interesting. You should uh, mention um, the adverse childhood um, experience uh, uh, score. Yeah, yeah, I guess they call that ACEs for short. Yep. Um, my wife is a, is a principal in an elementary school in a DC public school. So um, she works with the, uh, with the, with that ACEs test a lot with the, you know, it's given to students to kind of assess, you know, what what their mental state essentially might be um, right. as they're as they're entering elementary school uh, or as they're going through elementary school, and so um, that's a it it seems to be a, a, an interesting tool in terms of um, trying to assess students what their mental state might be, um, how they might be responding um, in the educational facility or in the educational environment due to you know, trauma that they might have received, you know, in their lives and things like that. And so have you, um, in using that, have you seen where addressing that kind of trauma or addressing different kinds of traumas um, early actually allows them to, you know, be able to do better, let's say in the educational uh, environment, or is that something that, you know, um, needs to be even paid more attention to? Because I'm not even sure if that's something that's being addressed in all of the school systems. You know, I think it varies in school systems. I absolutely believe it's it's so critical that we that we are all taking a trauma informed approach um, with with children. I think that you know it kind of 
it seems to depend on funding and states and, and school districts in terms of how much training you know, school staff are receiving and how much they embrace that trauma-informed model. But I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to identify those things as early as possible in a child's school career, because that's where those important interventions can take place. You know, when I look at some of the kids I've worked with, even some of them that, I, that I've worked with recently, um, definitely they're getting in trouble at school. That's, that's just a big part of what brings them to therapy and helping them to understand why they got in trouble, like why they did the thing they did and what's going on in their mind that is kind of causing some of those maybe impulsive decisions or anger outbursts or anxiety that looks like anger, but it's really anxiety. Educating a child about what's going on inside them and what they can do to, to, to like truly manage it because like that explosive anger doesn't make it go away. It just makes things worse. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to ramble, but when you think about like a child who has anxiety, oftentimes an anxious kid gets very explosively angry because they just, they're just so full of, of that, um, you know, they get very dysregulated because they, they're just so uncomfortable and so they might have an anger outburst. And then it's like, this This is just a bad kid. This is an angry kid. It's an anxious kid. This is a kid that needs help. And it's amazing when you start empowering a child to understand what anxiety is and what it does to their body and what they can do in response to those feelings. And they start making different choices, how much better they feel about themselves. And then the more their confidence increases, the more their success increases the more they're willing to try new things. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, definitely thank you for that. That's a, uh, uh, it's interesting. I, I guess, it's, you know, obviously it's a vital concern to us because if um, children are dealing, especially again in the black communities where children disproportionately are dealing with these kind of traumas and they go unaddressed and then they end up in the education system and the education system doesn't necessarily always know, you know, what to do with our children. Um, and, you know, instead of assessing them in these ways, you know, sometimes they get um, put into different categories and then are not able to um, continue or don't have great educational experiences. And of course, you know, what we talk about on this show is generational wealth. But if you're not having good educational experiences, then how do you move into areas where you could actually access, um, you know, access that, you know, uh, that knowledge that will allow you to, you know, do well in society um, and, and move forward and, 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 you know, make more money. So, you know, uh, again, like I said, I definitely applaud you for uh, the work that you're doing. I think that um, it's something that is vitally needed um, in our communities and across the nation as a whole and to, you know, continue to um, uh, spread that knowledge and, and, and spread that therapy as well. So thank you. Appreciate it. Um now, I, I feel like it's just, it's an honor to be able to do this work. It's so important. And, you know, I just, I wish it could happen in a much bigger way, but I just feel like we've got to do what we can do when we can do it, you know? And, um, I, you know, I look so much too at how kids that are, that have behavioral problems in school, so many times what happens is they just get in a more restrictive environment without those supports. And so then they just, it's almost like they're removing them from access to, to not making good choices. But then once that, that restriction is lifted, there's no skill building. So we really need to have that more therapeutic and trauma-informed approach with children everywhere. Yeah, definitely agree. Thank you. Stacy. before I let you go, um, what can we do in our community as leaders 
as black men, as, you know, entrepreneurs, as brothers and sisters that are really, you know, they're doing well for themselves. Homeowners, maybe the first generation college students, graduates. What can we do? Because, you know, I hear all the time, not a lot of black men mentors, but when we talk about mental health, what can the community do to assist you guys? You know, I think the biggest thing, and we've said it over and over and we can't say it enough, is just do what you can with the, with all the people that you encounter to put that message out there that that mental health is health and then, and do everything you can to fight that stigma. You know, and I think we need to, if we have to put it in a medical model and just say, you know, you would never judge a person for getting help for their diabetes. You would never get, judge a person for getting help for their heart disease. I, I just, that we need to remove that shame from getting help for your mental health issues. Both of you being in, in leadership positions and, you know, and I'm sure you both encounter a lot of people in your day to day, the more that message can be on repeat. It's just kind of like ripples, you know, when you talk about throwing a pebble and then the ripples go through the water, like that can make a huge difference. I just want to encourage people to reach out, go to go to um, the mental health associate, mhacf.org website, go to connections and, you know, make the, and get that access to these programs because we're here for you. And it's just the more people that access, the more of a difference we can make. Definitely. Well, that wraps it up. Stacy Perrin. Licensed clinical social worker, director of the Mental Health Association of Central Florida, MHACF, Youth and Family Services Program, started January 8th. Yes. Thanks for coming on Black Men Sundays. I appreciate all the gems you gave. I, I appreciate you for taking time out of your day to come on our show and enjoy the rest of your week. You do the same. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. It's a Black Men Sunday. Time to put all childish things away.